0: We're going to be in 1 Timothy this morning, if you guys want to turn there. (laughs) Uh, We're doing the, uh, continuing on our theme through the summer of synthetic study. We're going to be in 1 Timothy this morning, and as an introduction, as we get into this book, what we're seeing is, as the first century church, this is what is being built, the apostolic period from about 33 AD to about 100 AD. During this time, first century churches are increasing in number and a lot of questions are coming up, questions about order, structure, sound doctrine, and discipline within the church. And the apostles dealt with these questions and The apostolic period is coming to an end, and what's needed here is authoritative teaching on these subjects. Paul writes about faith and order for the future guidance of the churches. And what we're seeing here in 1 Timothy, and we'll also see this in 2 Timothy and in Titus, these are known as the pastoral epistles. And the primary focus is on practical application rather than theological aspects. So what we're seeing is, Several reasons now for the purpose of 1 Timothy, why he wrote it. He wrote this to Timothy to encourage him to stay at Ephesus and deal with difficult issues that had arisen in the church. So Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's providing an apostolic instruction, meaning apostolic was the authoritative, the individuals who walked with Jesus. The 11 plus Matthias from Acts chapter 1, the apostles, which are the foundation of the church, What Paul is passing on to Timothy here is this apostolic approval on how the household of God is to conduct itself and to teach Timothy how to teach to the church. So it's kind of like an instruction manual for Timothy as well. The purpose is to encourage Timothy to do this work, and it's also to transfer Paul's authority to Timothy to carry on what has been taught through the apostles through Christ. So major themes in the pastoral epistles that we're going to see in the next couple weeks Faith, salvation, good works, rebuke, personal integrity, the gospel, ethics, end times, and church order. So it's the practical application, it's structure, it's discipline, sound doctrine. How is the church to be internally? How is it to be organized? How is it to run? How is it to function? So the purpose of 1 Timothy, look at chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this verse this morning. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, But in case I am delayed, I write, so that, which is a of clause in the Greek meaning, here's the purpose, you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So what we're seeing here is each local church is to do two things. One, it's to teach the gospel. And two, it's to be a living, visible witness to the outside world. The church holds to this testimony up before an unbelieving world for everybody to see. There's nothing secret here. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing concealed. Everything that we do as Christians is in the open, and it's during the daytime. The during, not necessarily where the sun is up, but we're children of the light, not children of the darkness. The church holds this testimony up before an unbelieving world and this testimony is the truth. Notice the last thing that Paul says here. Pillar and support of the truth. Truth in the 21st century culture, in today's culture, in today's society. How does our society view truth? We talk about this a lot in our postmodern culture. Today, truth cannot be something that is arrived to. In our culture today, Everybody doubts everything. Our culture really doesn't see any way of holding something as an absolute. Truth is purely subjective, meaning it's not concrete, it's not written in stone, but it's based upon each person's interpretation on how they want to view things. So what we're seeing here is how, as a Christian church, do we engage a postmodern culture? Where do we begin? How do we start with this? Well, it's simply teaching the gospel, but it's not just shooting from the hip. We kind of have an order. We have to understand the culture that we're speaking into. So the first thing that we like to do, especially in the 21st century, is really emphasize the point of the existence of the biblical God. All truth, it's not subjective, it's not based upon one's opinion, but all truth has its source and origin in the Creator. So where do we go to find right and wrong? We go to God. Where do we find out how to live um, a happy and productive marriage? We go to God. And we go to God, and it's written in his self-authenticated word. So our communication to the Lord is through prayer, and God speaking to us is through the word. We emphasize the point that God exists. He is real. He's here. He's not distant, remote, or far away. God is personal, knowable, and you can have a relationship with him. The church is to present this to the culture that we live in today during the 21st century. Notice here in uh, verse 15, it says, "How um, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Notice what he says, which is the church of the living God. Why did Paul write that? Why did he say living God? Because he's speaking to a culture that is pretty much pagan. Paganism, pantheism, God is impersonal, God is unknowable. So what Paul is saying even in this verse is we worship the living God, the living God who is knowable and who is personal. So what Paul's doing already here in, in 1 Timothy 3.15 is speaking to the culture that he lives in. And this is our um, job as well as Christians, is to understand and to speak into the culture that we're living in. So let's focus on our culture a little bit this morning. How is today's culture? How do they view God? God is just an abstract concept of good. He's not real. He's not personal. God is just a crutch for those who are weak to go to for their problems. He's somebody's imaginary friend, so to speak. That's what people say. I remember I was delivering uh, medications in a nursing home one time, and somehow it, our discussion got on like spiritual topics, biblical topics, and she jokingly said, people who believe in God, talk to their imaginary friend. And I'm sitting there. So then two weeks later, I said, oh, I'm going to be leaving this route now. And she said, oh, what are you going to be doing next? I said, chaplain up at the jail. <laughs> she just looks at me and smiles. I said, yeah, I'm going to go talk to my imaginary friend. No, I didn't say it sarcastically, but I just joking around a little bit just to see what she would say back. And her face got bright red and she just kind of (laughs) walked away. But that's kind of how our culture views Christians is somebody who just talks to this imaginary being, that's just how they view us. A lot of them. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. So from their perspective, God's not real. He's not here. He's not personal. He's not knowable. A quote by Friedrich Nietzsche, 19th century German philosopher. Maybe you guys have heard of this. Repeatedly through his works, he said, God is dead. And what did he refer to? Not that God was alive and now that he died, but what he's saying is he's referring to the Western world's reliance on religion as a moral compass and a source of meaning. God is dead. Man is through with God. Man has science now. Man has reason now. And this is where the modern period came in. Today we're in the postmodern period because man realized that not everything in life can be measured in a test tube. Man cannot answer all of the questions using himself as the sufficient base of all things. So rather than trying to think that we can figure out all of man's problems through science, what we do now is we abandon all sources of truth and just say, there are no absolutes and what works for me works for me. Truth is going to be subjective. You can't have a book that tells me all the answers. It doesn't work that way. That's how our culture views this stuff. So as a result, then, what we see is today, man is in rebellion against God. Man is trying to exist outside the circle in which he has been created in. Any sin that a person struggles with is a result of an individual living in a direct, opposite way that God has prescribed. Man is trying to be something that he is not, pretty much, the God of his own universe, calling his own shots, living life the way he sees it, rather than living the life the way that God has ordained us to do so. What's the answer to the 21st century man, man's 21st century dilemma? Obviously, it doesn't change for us. The gospel, the truth is what it is. What is the gospel? Simply put, the removal of moral guilt that we have inherited in Adam, were conceived in sin, the removal of that, being justified in the presence of God through the blood of the cross, personal communication being restored, a spiritual rebirth, being born again, which results in the inward transformation of the human heart by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's our message to the 21st century world. Where is a person in today's culture going to find out this information? Where are they going to hear what I just said? Church. Where else are they going to hear it? You don't see this in the news media. You don't see this on television, really. I mean, even the 700 Club or shows like that, a little iffy sometimes. You really don't hear the pure gospel coming out. You're only going to hear it from church or from the um, structure of the church, biblical foundations. So it's very important to remember This is not done just by teaching and understanding biblical doctrine alone. This is important, but there's more to it than that. It is further demonstrated by the believer's moment-by-moment walk, a believer's moment-by-moment relationship with the Lord. And we call this living it out, or we call it living out the gospel. Many people who come to faith, if you talk to people about their conversion, when they were saved, when they believed, And they talk about their life beforehand and they talk about how their life is now and they talk about that moment of when they had that saving faith in Christ and the light turned on. When you listen to people's testimony, a lot of times you're going to hear that people came to the Lord by a witness or by an example of somebody else. Not everybody who's saved or comes to the Lord is strictly X's and O's, doctrine, this, that. We have to see the Christian faith lived out. Not just hear it, not just learn about it, but we have to see it. So what we're seeing here in First Timothy is Paul is laying this instruction out to Timothy how the internal structure of the church is to function. And we're going to take a look at that in a second. But the result of the internal structure then results into our witness on how we are viewed and how we carry ourselves and conduct ourselves in the outside world. So both the doctrine... And the lifestyle, they go hand in hand as a complete and total package of how we witness to the 21st century culture. So if I was going to ask you guys, what would be the number one complaint the world has against Christians? What would you think it would be? Themselves, Themselves meaning hypocrisy? Yes, That's exactly right. How many times I talk to somebody and they say, you know, I believe the Bible and, and I know there's a God or people will give you vague answers on what they believe, but... They say, Christians, I go to church, I see them, and then a week later, I know I work with this lady who goes to church and it's all this stuff about God and then I see her during the week and there's no way I can believe that she's a Christian or or he or either, either or. When I'm up at the jail, I talked to this one kid this one time who had an addiction to meth. There's a family up in Green Bay who took him in. Christian family. Brought him to church. When they went home at night, they'd bring out the drugs and smoke and get high right in front of this kid. So he said, okay, church is done. <laughs> this is hip- hypocritical. This ain't real. Until I see him that one week in my Bible study, we were able to sit down and explain, no, God is true. He's the source of everything. Humanity just gives you a false impression of who God really is. The true source is in the word. And the true relationship is between you and God. Somebody else giving you a bad example of Christianity doesn't lay the foundation. And a lot of times, we, you know, the world will use this, though, as a crutch as well. They will use bad Christian examples to justify or to give an excuse why they don't believe or why they don't follow Christ. They'll use those things. But this is why it's so important for us to dot our I's and to cross our T's and to make sure we are living in this 21st century culture representing exactly what the Bible teaches. So going forth on this now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's read verses 1 through 7. We're going to get to the internal structure of the church. And in verse 1, Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation and cured by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and in the snare of the devil. So, what we're going to see here now is internal church order, the structure of the church. And what I always liked to do as I was um, reading these verses before being a pastor or an elder, I would like to read these verses and then I would compare my lifestyle with these. Do I fit what this says? Even though I didn't hold the position of an elder, deacon, or anything else, I always tried to live up to these standards just because I knew this is the standard that God has prescribed to us. So this morning as we're going through this, just because we don't hold to these positions doesn't mean this isn't how God wants us to act. We are all in the full-time ministry, whether you know, we realize it or not. Everything we do is geared to what the Lord wants us to do. We're in the full-time ministry. So I always like to look at these and use these as standards for my own life. Let's go through a couple of these. Look at verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of an overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. Now the word overseer in the Greek, episkopos, what does it mean? One who has the responsibility of safeguarding or seeing to it that something is done in a correct way. So kind of like a guardian. So an elder or an overseer, these are um, interchangeable terms, it's the same office, is somebody who is making sure, making sure in the church that the church is functioning in a biblical manner. The term was taken over by the Christian community and it's seen as an overseer or a supervisor with special interest in guarding the apostolic tradition, meaning the gospel or guarding the gospel. So an overseer describes the major responsibility inherited by the position. Normally what it's emphasizing is oversight of the church. Now we go to a different position here known as elder Greek word is presbyteros. It's the same office with a different emphasis. Was an official position of leadership in the church that carried out pastoral responsibilities. Elder also describes the maturity of those who normally hold this position, primarily spiritual maturity. From the elder, we see pastor and teacher. Describes the gift and the work necessary to fulfill this position, a shepherd or a teacher. So what we see here now. The function of the early first century church. What do we normally think of a church today? A church has its congregation and a pastor. That's generally our mind's eye. This is how we view a church. First century Christianity, we didn't see this. What we see in the first century is a plurality of elders. Four, five, eight, however many elders there are. And out of the elders or out of the overseers or from the bishops come the pastors and the teachers. So during the first century, it wasn't a pastor who was in charge of the entire church but rather what we see is a plurality of elders, each taking on a function and a role in which the Holy Spirit has gifted that person to engage with in the church. So from the elders come the pastors and teachers, different functions for different callings and different gifts. Now what the church has to do is we have to be careful to investigate the character of the individual that we're putting on the pulpit or the character of the individual that we are electing as an elder. Character has to be impeccable. And this is what Paul goes through here. The focus is on the position. He's saying that the overseer or the elder is a significant position and it's to be taken very seriously. If we take a look at the book of James, chapter 3, verse 1, we're not going to turn there, but what James says is, don't become, many of you, don't become teachers because you receive a stricter judgment. So if we take on this position of elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, teacher within a church, God holds us to a stricter standard because we are the ones who have to be the ones watching over the church, making sure everything is functioning in a biblical manner. So what we're seeing here then in verse 2, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, it says, An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. What does it mean to be above reproach? This does not mean he's sinless, because nobody can live without sinning. But what it is, is his conduct and his actions should be seen by the congregation as blameless, or without fault, an impeccable reputation. Somebody, when you think about that person, you really have a hard time finding a fault in him. Not that you're not going to, because everybody, you know, we're human, we have faults, we sin. But it's somebody that, when you hear that person's name, you instantly, yes, I can trust that person. Yes, you can go to that person. That's being above reproach. Next one, husband of one wife. Four possible interpretations to this one. The meaning is kind of complex. Let's go through these here real quick. Does it mean that an elder should be married and that unmarried men are disqualified? Or does this statement speak against polygamy so that a man with more than one wife cannot become an elder? Or does this prohibit second marriages so that a man who desires to be an elder should not get married again, even though he is divorced or if his first wife dies? Or the fourth one, is this emphasizing the faithfulness to one's wife? And I would have to agree with the fourth one. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, it's better for a man not to marry, so he can give every ounce of his energy to the Lord, but 99.9% don't, and there's nothing wrong with getting married. So, Just because an individual isn't married, I don't think would disqualify that person from being an elder. The second one, against polygamy, that's pretty much common sense. The Scriptures teaches one man, one woman, together forever. That's a pretty easy one. So yes, the individual should be married to only one wife. That's pretty common sense. The third one, with second marriages, if somebody is divorced or if the first wife dies. That one can be probably interpreted either way. But the one that I would like to stress the most on is I think this is doing, it's putting the faithfulness that the husband has to the wife. How faithful, how dedicated, how devoted is the husband to the wife? How is their marriage? I think this is what this is emphasizing. Take a look at this in the Greek, and the word one is first. And word order in the Greek emphasizes just that, the emphasis. And since... The number one is the first word. I think this is exactly what it's focusing on. The emphasis is on one wife and his faithfulness to her. Next in this list, we see temperate. And what that means is conduct that is free from any form of excess, particularly in moral and spiritual matters. Kind of like a one-string banjo. Every time the person teaches, it's the same topic over and over. Or they just get stuck on a specific area in the Bible and they don't teach the whole Bible. So temperate. Prudent, meaning self-controlled. Respectable, with a good reputation. Hospitable, meaning a friend to strangers. Look at verse 3. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Not addicted to wine. In the Greek, it's me paroinas, referring to alcohol when it's misused. Misused. When alcohol is misused, we all know this from Wisconsin, it's an enslaving beverage. It controls you. It wrecks your life. But notice it's saying not addicted to it, not misusing it. Now, how do we define misuse? (laughs) This depends upon each individual person. A lot of people you come across, if they have one, they have to have 50. They can't stop at one. I would say one out one beverage would be a misuse for you because you cannot handle it or if you have drunk driving record or if you have a history of domestic disputes or domestic violence or when you drink you become depressed all of those side effects that come from alcohol I would say would be misuse even if you touch it now you have the individual person who can have a drink or two at, at, at dinner time wine or a beer or whatever and it doesn't you know they can do that very responsibly I don't see anything in the scripture here that speaks against that. So if you can handle it in moderation, this is what the Bible's talking about. Not becoming drunk, but with moderation. Now there's two types of things that can happen from this. We don't want to become legalistic. Where we go over to somebody's house that's at our church and we see they have a beer in their hand, and we're like, whoa, you're, you're having, that's not, no, there's nothing. People who can handle it in moderation, there's nothing wrong with that. But we don't want to cause others to stumble either. So if somebody would come over to my house and I have a beer in my hand, I think that would cause quite a few people to stumble. That's why I won't do it. You won't ever catch me with it. I won't ever drink. You know, I just don't do that. I won't, don't want to cause somebody else to stumble. So this is the position here. We don't want to get legalistic. But then at the second time, we don't want to cause our, you know, any type of rift or any type of stumbling block. Oh, the pastor or the elder, he's having a beer maybe. you know, And it's causing somebody who has an alcoholic addiction well, maybe one drink, ain't so bad. And then they go back into alcohol. So it's, there's a balance in this. We just have to use our, um, use our guidance, use our common sense on this. Pugnacious, meaning quick-tempered, use of physical force, somebody who snaps real quick, gets into fights, those type of people. Gentle, peaceable. Now look at this next one. Free from the love of money. The negative comes from the love of money, not from the possession of money. How many of us honestly could say this? That if we had $100 million in our bank account right now, that our relationship with God would be the exact same as it is right now. This is where money comes from. This is what money can do to us. It can soften us. If we think that we have money, we're going to put our trust in the money. We're going to put our mind on the money. What can I do to make it more? What can I do with this money? I can buy this. I can start that. Our mind then goes on to the money rather than relying upon the Lord for our day-to-day, moment-by-moment needs. So it's not necessarily the possession of it, but what does it do to our heart? And I'm going to say the majority of humanity, if they had the means to have $100 million or $10 million or $1 million in their bank account, if they had the means to obtain that, they would destroy themselves with it. They wouldn't have the discipline to control themselves. Their life would become a wreck, which is why you hear people when they win the lottery, they sometimes, a lot of people say they wish they never would have because their whole life just turns upside down, because now, literally, you can do pretty much whatever you want to do. You have that ability. What do we do with it? It's not the possession of money that's the sin. It's what it does to our heart and what it does to our character that causes the problems. Look at verse 4. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? So what we see here is the home, the house, how they manage their family is the proving ground, is the test to see how they're going to manage the church. How well well one runs their home will directly correlate on how well they run the church. And this is what Paul's saying here. Verse 6, Not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So what we see here is there should be evidence that this individual can teach, that this individual can take on this leadership position without becoming conceited. Inherent in becoming conceited is the notion of becoming blinded. Conceit is what puts Satan under his condemnation. Satan was the anointed cherub that covered. Pride entered into his heart. He sinned, brought sin into the universe. Same type of thing. So what the church has to do is guard new converts from becoming back into its premature state, allowing them to become an elder or in any type of leadership position. I think all of us at one point can go back to when we were saved and maybe a year or two or even shortly after, we attended quite a few Bible studies. We were motivated. We had a lot of ambition and a lot of zeal and we got to that point where we thought, you know what, I think I got this. <laughs> I got I, I, I got it. I, have reached that level of maturity. I think I could take on a leadership role. I think I'm here. And then not too long after, you blow it, and you completely realize that you have a long way to go. Now, I can remember I started seriously starting the Bible back in 1995, and each time I pick up a book or read the Bible, I'm like, wow, I've never seen that before. It's been 21 years, and it feels like I just scratched the surface. You know, And you talk to elder Christians and they will say the exact same thing as they are you know, entering into their 60s and 70s, spending their whole life devoted to scripture. They say, they just feel like that, they just started. So there's never a point in our Christian walk where we arrive, or we have it, or we got it down pat. But when new converts, with all that zeal and ambition, a lot of times this is what they fall into and they run headfirst right into a wall. And the Lord allows the individual to do so, to wake us up, to bring us to our senses that, no, we haven't arrived and it is a lifelong process of Christian maturity. So we're seeing here in verse 7, there is now, um, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So we're seeing here is integrity. Is the person's reputation inside the church just as good as the person's reputation outside of the church? Do these two balance each other out? An example, kind of hesitant to use this example this morning. I'm not doing this for any type of political reason, but Donald Trump's been in the news a lot lately. What he's been doing now, he's been building, he's trying to gain his support amongst evangelical Christians. He's been endorsed by Liberty University President Jerry Falwell, Jr. He's building his reputation. Um, He's building his Evangelical Advisory Board with Michelle Bachman putting this together. I don't know if you guys saw this week on Twitter. I saw this picture of Jerry Falwell, Jr. with Donald Trump. And they're both giving the thumbs up to the camera. But in the background on the wall behind Donald Trump are... Covers of magazines that he's been on. Well, one of them right over his left shoulder was Playboy from 1990. (laughs) So that spread like wildfire throughout the Christian community. Here's Jerry Falwell Jr. with the thumbs up. He's got my Christian endorsement, okay? But then we look right behind him, and one of his crown achievements framed on his wall is when he's on the cover of Playboy. Now, I'm not trying to influence anybody's votes here. I'm just trying to be discerning. I read this morning that James Dobson said that Donald Trump has now accepted Christ. He's a new believer. And now that's possible. I'm not saying it's not, but we want to look on this with discernment, thinking, okay, is his reputation outside the church now he's gaining this evangelical support? Do they match out? Are, is the rubber meeting the road here with this individual? I'm not saying he's not saved, I'm not trying to say anything negative, positive, or negative or anything political, but just is his integrity there with the Christian values? This is what we're looking at specifically that Paul's talking about here with elders, but you can see this also with political leaders who have an influence over the Christian community. So next, with 1 Timothy, let's go to chapter 3. Let's read 8 through 13. It's going to be, quickly we'll go over this. This is about deacons. Verse 8, it says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to too much wine, or fond of sordid gain, But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they were beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious, gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what we're seeing here is the deacon role is the servant role of the church, one identified for a specific ministerial service in the Christian community. Now verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to too much wine or found of sordid gain. What is sordid gain? Dirty money. Any type of way of making money that's illegal or unethical or immoral. Double tongued, very important to understand this. To be insincere, not trustworthy, indulging in harmful gossip, spreading different versions of the same story, saying one thing to one person and something completely different to somebody else. So, like that list of elders, now we're seeing the same type of thing in the deacon role. The same type of integrity that's expected for an elder is to carry over and to pass over into the deacon role as well. So going to chapter 6, we'll finish on this this morning. Um, Engaging the culture. Now we've seen the internal structure of the church. Plurality of elders, deacons, conduct, ethics, all of these types of things. The structure of the internal church. Now our witness as we carry this out to the external world. Verse 3 of chapter 6. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. So, what we're seeing here is the culture as we engage it is responsible and held accountable for believing what we present to them. And when they do not, we see what happens to the heart of them in verse 4, being conceited, understanding nothing. Look at verse 5. And constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So constant friction with the depraved mind. I can remember when I was in, um, just out of high school, just starting college, a friend of mine and I, he had a uh, place out on Lake Poygan, and we loved to tube uh, with the inner tube behind the boat. And if it got to the point where we got so used to it and got pretty good at it where we wouldn't do it anymore unless there was huge waves. And as I was being pulled behind the boat on this tube, my body type is, is, is real dense and it sinks right into the tube. So as I'm sunk into the tube, these big waves are hitting me one after the other. Boom, boom, all the way through. And nothing but a smile on my face. I I couldn't get away with that anymore. I'd probably break my neck. But I can remember just struggling against those waves and hitting each one over and over and over. That's what comes to mind here when I see this constant friction between men with depraved minds. They go uphill. They go into the wall. They go into those waves with everything they have. And it hits them over and over. You would think after a while, common sense would set in and say, hey, The lifestyle that you're leading isn't the lifestyle that God has intended for you. You know, you're going uphill both ways on this. But it's still through the stubbornness and through the conceitness and through the conceited heart that men have, we go into this on every single day and we fight against everything that God has ordained. So we see here as man is trying to exist outside of the circle in which God has created him. Any sin a person struggles with is a direct result of the person living directly opposite to God, how God has ordained us to do so. I had a sergeant up at the jail this week show me this picture of this, this young 20-year-old girl. the first picture of when she was booked. The fifth picture of when she was booked. The 10th picture, and you could see that the drug addiction she had just completely took her over. From the very first picture to the very last picture, you wouldn't even recognize this individual. And this is what sin does to the person. This is what happens to an individual who's constantly fighting against God. Common sense would just stand back and look and see their lifestyle doesn't match the way that God has ordained for us to live. So what we're seeing here is man is trying to be something that he's not. Man is trying to be the God of his own universe and choosing to make his own choice and live life his own way. It's always going to end up in destruction, Unless we bow the knee to Christ, understand that His word is truth, and ordain our lives to the way that God has prescribed us to do so. Now, notice that second part of the verse. Supposing that godliness is a means of gain. Thinking that being a Christian is a way of becoming rich, that God financially blesses the faithful and the moral, but those who have their sin, they live and they remain in poverty. That's just not the way it is. Becoming a Christian, Jesus says, take up your cross deal with it, you're going to suffer in this life. No way you're going to be, I mean, people who do, there are rich Christians or Christians who have successful businessmen. Again, the possession of money is not the sin, but it's the love of the money that creates that sin. Verse 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. So the question we have to ask ourselves then is what, does Paul say is enough to be content with? What does the Bible say if you have this, you're content or you should be content? Look at verse 8. If we have food and covering, with this we shall be content. (laughs) So how to be content? Loving God enough not to want more than what he's given you and loving man enough not to become envious of what he has. So anytime that we want more or anytime that we feel like we are not achieving our potential or we don't have enough money in the bank or the neighbor over here has this type of car or my friend who graduated with me has this big of house and he has this Any Anytime that we start to take our eyes off of what God has given us, we start to look around and become envious. We have stepped outside of that circle of being content and we fall into sin. Our relationship with the Lord is hindered. Same thing with individuals. We take our heart, we take our mind off of what God has given us, and we see what the other person has, and immediately we become envious. So our relationship with God and our relationship with man is purely based upon us being content and not coveting what they have. Finishing up with verses 9 and 10 here. Verse 9, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snare And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The problem of living in a culture that is poor is the lack of necessities, but it keeps one humble and focused upon God. The problem of living in a culture that's in affluent or in abundance is overabundance and still wanting more. The result is the temptation and the snare of money and evil because it's there. You can get it. It's obtainable. Go after it. All you have to do is devote everything you have, but in this country, you can become rich. Go get it. Or if you are in a poor country or a third world country, all you're looking for is food and shelter. Yes, you're suffering physically, but on the inside, you remain humble and you remain hungry and you may remain um, relied upon the Lord. But the problem that we have in this cult- culture, in the 21st century Christian in America, is the overabundance. And the reality is that, yes, we can achieve those things, that they are there, but what does it, at what cost? Everything we have, we have to dedicate towards it because it's a competition. It's a very competitive world out there. We fall into the snare. Of riches, and we fall into the snare that our culture has been pretty much been going over since the depression. So, you got a song you want to play, Trail? we Trail's going to close um, with the song, and then next week we'll be in Second Timothy, continuing the synthetic study.